So we're going to read um, from John chapter 4. We're reading our way through John's gospel. If you've not been at Cafe Church before, uh, if we haven't met before, by the way, my name's Alistair, Alistair Duncan. I'm the minister here. I think I've met you all now, um, but nice to have you with us if it's your first time. Um, so John chapter 4, and we're going to read the next part. When you think of John 4, you think of the encounter Jesus had with the woman at the well, the woman of Samaria. And we've read that. We took two weeks to think about that story, and we left uh, that story with Jesus spending two days uh, in um, Samaria, in the village where the woman was from, and, and as a result of her introduction of her, that encounter preparing the way, Jesus spent two days, and many more uh, believed. And the, the conclusion in verse 42 uh, of that encounter and the time he spent in Samaria was that the people of Samaria said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said, now we've heard for ourselves. And we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Wouldn't you love to know? I would love to know what transacted during those two days. I mean, we know all about, we've microscopically taken apart the, um, uh, the kind of encounter that Jesus had at the well and everything that took place, but he spent two days with these people, and we don't know what he said to them or taught them. We don't know uh, how that unfolded, but we know that it was enough to convince them uh, that Jesus was the Savior of the world. Wow, that's quite a declaration, given that his own disciples were, in some respects, a lot slower to uh, understand exactly who it was that they were spending three years with. So, we're going to read on, and uh, the little passage at the end of chapter 4, um, which in the New International Version, which is the version we use here, uh, is headed, Jesus Heals an Official's Son. So, the reading's up there on the screen. There are Bibles at the sides. Borrow one if you want to follow along, if you don't have your own. Let's hear God's Word. After the two days, he left for Galilee. Now, Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they also had been there. Once more, he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay ill at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. And the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. Amen. May God bless his word to us 
I ask you to think about uh, long walks that you've gone on, walks that may not have been of your choice or choosing, and walks that obviously stand out in your memory because they came to mind. Sometimes we're just forced to walk by sheer necessity. I was overhearing May's story of getting dropped off while on holiday in France uh, by a bus with her suitcases and discovering after the driver dropped them all off uh, and uh, drove away that they were one mile, was it, from their final destination. And so in the sweltering summer sunshine of the south of France, uh, she and the other passengers on the bus had to lug their luggage for a mile, uh, which, you know, if it was just a, a, a walk for a mile is one thing, but when you're dragging your luggage and you don't know how far it is, it's, it's a long way. And maybe some of you had stories of, of inconvenience, even if you did keep the fare and walk for four hours just for the fun of it. But there have been times where we've had no other option but just to walk because that's the reality. I was at uh, uh, um, Vision and Strategy Day with Glasgow City Mission yesterday, and one of the things that we came up in the course of our conversation was, was just a little reflection on the challenge of, of transport poverty uh, in Glasgow, that actually for a lot of people access to services and access to appointments and access to the provision that they need um, is out of reach because every bus fare is maybe another £2.50 or whatever. Uh, return £5. Well, if you're working off a minuscule budget, that's just money you don't have. I was chatting to Casper, the guy that paints or draws outside the church, and he's in one of Ian's paintings on Friday. He was telling me that every day he needs to earn a certain amount of money to pay for his roof, the roof over his head. But in addition to that, it costs him, uh, I think it was a total of £7.50 to get in and out to the city centre. And so he does what lots of people do, is just walk because that's the only option that they have. Of course, in Jesus' day, there was no transport network. There were better roads gradually under the influence of the Roman Empire, but uh, nonetheless, your options were walk or don't go. Why am I making a big deal about walking? Because sometimes when we read the New Testament, we uh, miss out on the detail which tells us things. <laughs> we miss out on the detail which is a marker of uh, what's really going on in somebody's head or heart or story. And here we have this story of a royal official which uh, reads and sounds very much like the centurion's servant. Uh, it's the similar kind of story. The centurion's servant, of course, in the other gospels, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who tell broadly the same stories, although there's a variation between them. And they tell the story of the centurion who said that his servant lay sick at home, but just say the word and you will be healed because I am not worthy. Or rather, it was the other way around. He said, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Just say the word and he'll be healed. And Jesus said the word and, and uh, then marveled at the faith of the centurion because he said, I haven't found faith like this in Israel. Someone ready and willing to believe that what I say actually happens. And that's I suppose the, the challenge of faith for all of us, if we take nothing else away from today, there's the challenge. We might 
just uh, sum up the message or, or the, the stellar teaching from this passage with the, uh, with the words of, of the second half of verse 50. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. Okay, there we are. We're done. You can go home now. Just go and think about that. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. Because that's the nub of the whole passage, right? That's the, the core part is we either believe or we don't. We either take Jesus at his word and build and invest our lives on that which we cannot see and on the one whom we can only know by faith and trust that he is indeed uh, real and faithful, that he's for us and not against us, that in his grace he has come to pursue us, to offer himself for us all the way to death and through death to resurrection that we might have life. Do we believe it? Here we are in 2019. I'm really forcing myself this year to do that. I keep going to 2018. I've just not made the flip yet. But here we are in 2019 in Glasgow, and you made a choice to be here in the fellowship of believing people to sing songs of worship and to pray, to be in a community of faith. Why? Because either you're on a journey of seeking or interest or inquiry, or for the most part, because you've already believed. And in that risk of believing, of putting your faith in, in these words, which are thousands of years old, many of them, 2,000 years, certainly, almost the New Testament, much older the Old Testament. And here we are in modern 21st century Western Europe in Glasgow, building and basing our lives on these words. And why are we doing that? Because to a lot of people, that just seems like utter folly and nonsense. Why on earth would you base and found your values, your way of looking at the world, the things that you live for, the decisions that you make, how you invest your life, your time, your career in some cases, your money. Jesus, the man took Jesus at his word and departed. But let's go back a little bit. Jesus has spent then these two days in, in Samaria and territory that good, pious Jews would go a long way to avoid walking through, to spare themselves the contamination of Samaritan scum. And Jesus went through Samaria, and in that encounter, left a community of people now believing that the Savior of the world had come amongst them. And then after those two days, Jesus leaves for Galilee. And when he comes to Galilee, we're told that the Galileans welcomed him because they'd seen all that he'd done. I made a, a slightly alarming discovery yesterday as I was uh, preparing uh, and thinking about this passage again in preparation for today. I made the discovery that uh, in going through John from the beginning and... <laughs> 
None of you spotted this, or if you did, you didn't tell me. I missed out a bit of John. <laughs> I have missed out a bit of John chapter 2. Somewhere in Christmas and Advent and all the rest of it, we managed to go from the wedding at Cana in Galilee to Jesus meeting Nicodemus at night, and we missed out the fact that John records Jesus cleansing the temple in as early as chapter 2. So we're going to go back and do that. Because I was reading this bit thinking, the Galileans welcomed him. They'd seen all that he'd done in Jerusalem in the Passover festival, for they'd been there. And I thought, when was that? And I went back and checked, and it was when Jesus was in Jerusalem, and he cleansed the temple, and he made this bold declaration after he had overturned the tables of the money changers and so on. He made this bold declaration when they came and said, who do you think you are to do this? He said, destroy this temple, and I will rebuild it in three days. And then it goes on to say that people were amazed at the signs that he performed, And so Jesus was exercising a ministry already of signs of who he was. This that we've read today, and we will go back and and have another look at at the cleansing of the temple because it has a place, obviously. John put it at the beginning for a reason. But this is the second sign. John's gospel, uh, John John likes the number seven. (laughs) Seven is a a holy number. it's a holy number in, in creation, and, and sevens are, 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 are significant numbers. And, and so John, uh, in his gospel, likes sevens. And so as we go through, we will discover that Jesus, as I'm sure, if, if I was to say gospel of John and the number seven, what sevens immediately come to mind? Anyone want to shout out? Seven signs, Yes seven I am sayings. And there's another seven, which is less obvious, but there are seven other places where Jesus says, I am, ego, I me, without saying, I am the light of the world, or I am the resurrection and the life. He says, I am. We saw one of them last week. I who am speaking, or two weeks ago, though, when he said to the woman of Samaria, I, the one speaking to you, I am. It doesn't say I am he, it says I am. I am, of course, is the, is the divine name, God's name. Moses said to God, when God revealed himself to him, who shall I say has sent me? When God revealed himself in the burning bush and sent Moses to go and say to Pharaoh, set my people free, who shall I say has sent me? And God revealed his name. He said, I am, or I am who I am. And so I am is the name that good pious Jews will not even speak. And so of the seven signs... Um, someone just came in at the back. It's fine, it's fine. Ian's there, it's fine. Of the seven signs, this is number two. First is water into wine. The second is this story about healing this boy. The third we'll move on to look at next week, the healing, if we don't do chapter two, that is, the healing at the pool of Bethesda, the man who said, well, I can't get into the waters until they're troubled or disturbed. And Jesus told him to get up and take up his mat and walk. The fourth sign in John's gospel is the feeding of the 5,000. The fifth sign is when a man born blind was healed by Jesus, and they uh, went and checked with the parents and all the rest of it. Was he really born blind? The sixth sign in John's gospel 
is the raising of Lazarus. And the seventh sign is, of course, the resurrection, the climactic sign of all signs of Jesus being raised from death to life. And so this uh, building momentum of Jesus, which begins with this, this celebration, this explosion of wine, this obscene surfeit, which is a pointer towards the marriage supper of the Lamb, the climax and fulfillment of all things, the other end of the story. So, Jesus beginning with a sign where water that belongs to the law is turned into wine, good wine, lots of wine, an abundance, far too much for that group of people, and ends with the marriage supper of the Lamb when we will all be together and Jesus will again taste of the fruit of the vine as He said He would. And so, this is the second sign. I'm moving towards the, the, the victory of Jesus over, over sickness, and all of these signs have to do with setting people free from sickness or from death or from uh, poverty. And so, the, he comes, and the Galileans who had seen all that he'd done at the Passover festival when he was down in Jerusalem spoke well of him, contrary to expectation. No prophet is, uh, prophet has no honor in his own country. And so, we're told he went back to Cana in Galilee, which is where the water into wine took place. And when he went, was in Cana, there was a certain royal official. Well, we don't know much about this guy. He doesn't have a name. But then, I suppose the best way that we might compare him uh, is by thinking of him as like a senior civil servant. He was a royal official, which therefore means that he was somehow in the employ of Herod Antipas, who was the, the reigning Herod. And so, he was uh, part of his entourage. We don't know what his uh, official status was. But he was somebody who was preoccupied with all the tensions and the affairs of state. Now, Herod was a puppet king allowed to rule by the Romans so that it kept the peace amongst the people. The Romans considered wisely that if it looked like they had allowed the, the, their, the people their own king, then there would be less rebellion and uprising. And so, Herod had some of the uh, appearance of authority, but none of the real substance of it. I suppose in the same way, but extremely different, a bit like the queen is a constitutional monarch, but actually decisions are made in government. And this guy might well be like a senior civil servant, and I would imagine at this time, you know, in amongst all the affairs of state and all the affairs that are preoccupying the government with Brexit and all that might or might not happen and so on, you know, you can… I don't know that there was a Brexit going on at the time. I think they would have liked a Brexit. I think they would have been like an Isrexit uh, out of the Roman Empire. Uh, they would have loved an Isrexit uh, to get their own statehood back. They would have loved a wee referendum to decide whether or not we accept Roman rule. And I think that the answer to that one would have been fairly emphatic. No, thank you very much. And whilst there wasn't an official is Brexit or a referendum going on, nonetheless, 
There were political touch papers all over the place. And in amongst all of the political shenanigans and the uh, hatching and plotting that was going on, there were zealots, there were resistance fighters, there were those that were complicit with Rome and so on. In amongst the politics of that world, which was just as uh, uh, chaotic and, and full of intrigue as ours is, there was this man whose son was sick and dying. In the same way that every now and then, when we hear of all the names of all the characters that cross the stage in, uh, in Parliament in Westminster, and we maybe, you know, we maybe cheer or we maybe boo or hiss, depending on who they are when they take their stage, but behind every one is a story. I think there have been times when our leading politicians their stories have come into the public light, and we've been moved by them. And Gordon Brown lost a child. David Cameron. There have been times where our politicians are revealed to be people with family concerns and things that are just the ordinary stuff of life. And that however steely they might appear, and however much they might be objects of love or loathing in the eyes of the people. They are people known to God and individuals with a story, shaped by their background experience and choices and not always making decisions that we applaud or honor. And here was a certain royal official. Here was a Sir Humphrey, if you're old enough to know that reference, whose son was sick in Capernaum. The distance from Capernaum to Cana, which is why I asked you to think about walking, is 25 miles. And so when we glibly read that his son lay ill in Capernaum, and we know that Jesus is in Cana, we then factor in a man who left a son who was in all likelihood on the brink of death in order to make a 25-mile trip very probably on foot, to find Jesus. No ambulance, no Pony Express, nothing to get him there quickly as far as we know. No mention of a chariot. And here's a man who left his son in the knowledge that I might be kissing him goodbye. I might walk out of this house and I will receive news at some point from an envoy or a messenger, or I will come back, and I will come back to bury my son. And yet, this man, having heard through the rumor mill of Galilee about the things that Jesus was alleged to have been doing in Jerusalem around the Passover feast, without, as far as we know, any prior personal knowledge of Jesus or relationship with Him, left home and family, kissed His son farewell, perhaps, and set off on a 25-mile walk in order to pursue the only glimmer of hope that remained on the horizon in a world where health care was alchemy and magic and 
random happenstance more than actual science or knowledge. It tells you a measure of his faith or maybe just a measure of his desperation. Sometimes it's desperation that fuels our journey towards Jesus, isn't it? Sometimes it's desperation that steers our feet into a church or a place of worship. Sometimes it's desperation when we realize how much brokenness there is in our world or the lives of other people. Sometimes it's desperation when we look at a broken society and all of these broken lives and the best of what we have to offer in health, in public policy, in social service, in education is never going to be enough because actually what makes the difference is transformation. What makes the difference is the transformation from the inside that only Jesus can effect. I think I mentioned to you, I'm not sure if I mentioned this to you last week or not. No, I can't have done because I just had the meeting, I think, earlier this week. But I was involved in a meeting with some other church leaders. And loosely, all of the churches that we represented are churches that are engaged in some degree, to some degree or another in, uh, in, in seeking to help. So, churches that are seeking to engage with people who have come through the criminal justice system or to engage with people who are battling with mental illness and uh, the issues around that, or churches that are seeking to support and help people find a way out of addiction, churches that are seeking to be there for people uh, in some of the very real challenge that, that people face. And there's one guy there, a guy called Ian, who um, has been doing some research. I'm not quite sure whether it's for a master's or whatever. But, you know, he reckoned that there are something like 44 to 47 different Christian projects and initiatives in and around Glasgow, all seeking to address and minister to people in different ways. Homelessness, food poverty, addiction, criminal justice, the issues that I've described to you. And interestingly, what he said was that it's not just his observation, but it's his experience, and he knows it to be the case, that increasingly statutory services are turning to the churches. <laughs> statutory services that are overwhelmed with the scale of need and demand are recognizing, and they may not understand what lies behind it, but that actually Christian churches that are seeking to engage in kingdom ministry to see Jesus bring transformation and freedom into the lives of people uh, are bringing about deep and lasting transformation in some lives that public policy is unable to do that. What is it unable to do? What is the difference? I spent all of yesterday in a vision and strategy meeting because I'm on the board of Glasgow City Mission. You know, and wrestling with the question... What does the mission need to look like that is nearly 200 years old that still seeks to bring the good news of Jesus and the power of the kingdom and the freedom of the gospel in transforming lives, in transforming ways for the least and the lowest of the city? What does that need to look like and how do we fulfill that responsibility? Because there's evidence 
that it's as people engage with the grace of God. And I'm not saying that, please do not hear me saying that, that uh, there is no benefit or, or positive work being done outside of the kingdom. I am absolutely not saying that. I'm only too well aware of how stretched the services are. But you see, transformation is something that begins on the inside. That unless a heart or a life, unless there's a new perspective, unless there's a new power to get free, unless there is some change that takes place on the inside, then people are going to find themselves often trapped. And and not as to say that just because someone becomes a Christian that it's just like a walk in the park and suddenly everything's uh, an easy breeze, because it's not like that either. But this man, who had access to money and status, who had access to uh, influence and probably such good doctors as there were, kissed his son goodbye and made a 25-mile journey on foot because he'd heard about Jesus. I wonder what that 25-mile journey was like. I don't think I've ever walked 25 miles. Not all in one go. I wonder what it feels like to walk 25 miles when every step takes you away from the sun you think you're probably not going to see again. I wonder what 25 miles feels like when you want it to be five miles so that you can get there quickly. And here is this man motivated by one thought that maybe, just maybe, this Jesus of whom they speak so highly and who has performed incredible miracles and signs elsewhere, maybe, just maybe, there'll be a crumb for my boy. Maybe, just maybe, there'll be something that will save my son. And so throwing off any vestige of importance and power and pomp and importance, this man comes to Jesus. Here's a man who in his own sphere and domain is a man of worldly importance, and yet none of those badges that make him who he is like Jairus, the synagogue ruler, whose daughter would receive a similar miracle. They knew, as you and I know, that it doesn't matter what you've achieved in life or done. The most important things, the life-transforming things that bring hope and freedom and life are not things that we can work at or achieve. They are the gifts of God's grace. And this man who perhaps was in a position to do for others out of his status and prestige, was down on his uppers and desperate. It's an interesting little reflection in this story of a father making a journey for the sake of his son. A father of royal position leaving the place of his royal position in order to come in desperate pursuit for his boy. A little mirror image, perhaps, in some ways of Jesus, the Son of God, who left the glory and the splendor of the kingdom, of the presence of God, who left heaven in order to come and walk on earth as walk Jesus did, 
in order to find people. I have come. The Son of Man has come, said Jesus, to seek and to save that which was lost and to bring them back to the Father. And Jesus, like this man, but in very different ways, put off the splendor of heaven, put on the sandals and the dust of the road in order to come after you, in order to come after you, in order to bring an invitation, a miracle of freedom, of transformation, of hope, of life to you. He came all of that way in order to bring whole life healing. He put that ahead of status or position. And so this man arrives, and finally he gets to Cana, and finally he finds Jesus there, and it must have been known that Jesus was going to be staying there for a bit. How frustrating if you walk 25 miles and find that he left two hours ago. And Jesus is there, and so the royal official comes and begs him to come and heal his son, to come and heal his son. And so at first, his expectation, his mindset was, I go get him, he come with me, we go back to Capernaum, he heal my son, because that's the story. That's what happened in Jerusalem. And so he begs Jesus to come and heal his son. And Jesus' answer, a little bit like his almost dismissal of Mary when she says they have no more wine. And, and the Greek, uh, actually, it doesn't translate very well, but the Greek of Jesus' answer basically says, what to me and to you? In other words, what do your concerns have to do with my concerns? And it seems rude and dismissive. And yet Mary, knowing her son better than that, says, do whatever he tells you. And here in this instance, it seems that Jesus almost sighs and says, oh, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. There's no pastoral chat. <laughs> There's no warm welcome invitation to tell me about your son. You know, sometimes I think Jesus pushes back. The 25-mile walk is, I suppose, in some ways a picture of prayer. I'm sure that man was praying as he walked. It's a picture of the long journey, I suppose, because we're driven and motivated by concern, by longing, perhaps by desperation to see transformation. And so he's finally reached Jesus, and Jesus says, you will never, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. And he tries again. He tries again. I don't know why or how or where he gets the courage, but it's born out of desperation. It's born out of faith. And it's born out of this being a last-ditched attempt. And he says, sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus' answer, well, you can take it all sorts of ways. It depends on how he said it. It's the downfall of texting, right? You send a text and you know how it sounds in your head and, and someone else gets it and it sounds very different in their head and then you read it back and think, oh, you could take it like that. Oops. 
And Jesus says, go, your son will live. Now, we could play with those words and make them say all sorts of different things. Go, your son will live. Go, your son will live. Depends how he said it. And I don't know how he said it. But the miracle, and it's a beautiful miracle of faith, is contained in the words I asked you to take away from this in verse 50. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. Because you have said, because you have said. And I hope that he walked those 25 miles saying, He said. <laughs> That's what I would hold on to. You said. You said my son would live. You said my son would live. You who've performed miracles and signs, you said, I hold you to your word. I don't think God minds us being bold where his word is concerned. Indeed, the opposite is true. I think God would like us to believe that he stands resolutely by his word and is committed to it and to its fulfillment. It's why so much of the gospel speaks about the fulfillment of Scripture. Why? Because God keeps His Word. And the only difference between the power and the strength and the certainty of God's Word, working or not, is whether we believe what He said or not. And so, the man took Jesus at His Word and departed. What is there in your life right now that perhaps you need to bring to Jesus? What is there that you need to look at His Word? And I'm not saying you can just go plucking Scriptures randomly out of the air and, and saying, well, I'll take that one because that would be nice, wouldn't it? But what has God promised? I will never leave you or forsake you. Whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. We could go on. That's the basis on which we're here, right? Because we're those who are seeking and sometimes struggling and sometimes getting it wrong, but seeking to take Him at His word and build our lives on them. And what are we discovering in the process of doing that? We're discovering life. We're discovering hope. <laughs> We're discovering joy. We're discovering purpose. We're discovering direction. We're discovering security. We're discovering what it is to be loved. We're discovering what it is to be brought out of orphanness and into adoption and family status as sons and daughters. And so the man took his, at his word and departed. And whilst he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired about the time, they said, when his son got better, they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon. So we know it was a two-day journey. 
or a one and a half day journey anyway. It wasn't a journey you could complete in one day. By the time he took Jesus at his word at one o'clock in the afternoon to the time when he actually got back within reach of the servants who came out looking for him, it's a long journey. And the man realized that the very moment Jesus had said the words and he had believed them and taken them and carried them like a precious cargo on that road, the son had got well again and the household, as a consequence, believed. So, what does this look like in your life? What does it look like in your life? Of course, we know that our badges, prestige, privilege, or status, whatever we do work for or achieve, will not make us immune from need or trouble. Nothing we can do will protect or insulate us from exposure to life. And so, there's a call and an invitation in 21st century Glasgow to know that there's a journey to be made a journey to the feet and the place of Jesus, and perhaps a 25-mile journey or 50 miles if you do the round trip is a metaphor for an invitation and a reminder that God likes to be taken at His Word, and He likes His people to beat a path, because the beating a path to His presence and His feet is an expression of faith and knowing our need and of being serious about His ability and willingness to meet and answer it. Earlier on, Ian was taking photographs when you were eating for one painting, the parable of the great banquet. It's a reference to the fulfillment of the wedding at Cana in Galilee. But earlier on, when we were praying before many of you got here, he was taking photographs for uh, or, or Ross and, and he were, or were filming for um, a painting which, well, it's hiding now. It's gone away. Is it in the corner? Alec? It's at the Framers, right, okay. For the friend at midnight, the story Jesus told about the man who comes annoyingly late at night and says, I've got folks arrived unexpectedly, give us your food. And Jesus uses that annoying pest as a picture of an invitation to prayer, an invitation to walk the road that leads to Jesus out of faith and desperation in order that Jesus might point us to His Word, because it's in that journey and in that encounter that He points us to His Word, and that He shows us something, and we think, yeah, that's the Word He's giving me. And then the invitation is to take Him at His Word and say, okay, I'm holding on to this. I'm holding on to this. If you let your life be shaped by what God has said and is saying to you, you'll find that your life is being shaped by a word that two, four, more thousand years later on is still living, active, and powerful. You'll be building your life, as Jesus said, upon rock and not on sand. The words of this world are shifting and they're coming and going. Government policy, all sorts of policy will come and go. They're shifting sands. But the Word of God endures, gives life, brings hope and transformation. And certainly, as that father with tears in his eyes, I'm sure, embraced the son he thought he might never see again, he was grateful that he'd made the journey. He was grateful 
that he had taken Jesus at his word. Go thou and do likewise. Let's pray together.